This week on Geek Explained, Geektober rolls on with an in-depth look at the perfect Halloween miniseries. So let's head into the unknown and over the garden wall. Welcome back to Geek Explained. I'm your host, Eric Kazana, and today's episode is part two of Geektober. This is the series where every week of the month of October, I'll be tackling a different subject to celebrate the spooky season. We kicked off Geektober last week with a special look, a spotlight, if you will, on the comic series American Vampire by Scott Snyder and Raphael Albuquerque. And this week, we're taking a special in-depth look at what I consider to be the perfect Halloween miniseries. And I don't throw that word around very often, at least I try not to, but I believe for the Halloween season, for the fall season, this is the perfect miniseries, and that is 2014's Over the Garden Wall. I have been dying to talk about this, and I cannot wait to dive into this series. There's so much to talk about. Uh, we also have the final weekly review for season two of the boys and oh boy did a lot of stuff happen there and of course this week's comics countdown but before we get into all of that let's check in with this week's news All right, guys and dolls, so we got some news for you this week. We have our four categories, film, TV, comics, and miscellaneous. We're going to kick things off with miscellaneous news, uh, two pieces of video game news that we're looking at today. Uh, first off, there's more Marvel characters joining Fortnite, apparently, because Fortnite is apparently becoming Marvel the video game that Avengers was supposed to be, but just isn't, I guess. Um, apparently, Daredevil will be joining uh, Fortnite as a uh, battle pass character. I don't know what that is. I haven't played Fortnite. Um, I don't. I don't intend to, but they keep adding characters, and it's like, what am I? What am I supposed to do here? If you are a Fortnite fan. Um, Feel free to let me know. Um, I'm like I said, I don't really have an interest in it. I just I I don't know. They keep adding in characters. They keep adding in comic accurate skins, and it's starting to make me question whether I should be interested in Fortnite or not. I don't know. It's weird. Um, in other Marvel gaming news, we got a huge uh, info dump for uh, Spider-Man Miles Morales, which is slated to come out on launch day next month uh, with the PS5. I am pretty excited about this. First off, they showed off a Spider-Verse-inspired skin where um, 
Miles is basically wearing like the top half of uh, of Peter's original Spider-Man suit from the first game with the uh, jacket and hoodie and the shorts and the sneakers that he had to kind of homage to Into the Spider-Verse, which is cool. I kind of wish they had just gone straight for that look, but I understand that they need to make it their own, using quotations. Um, and we also got a tease for the Spider-Man 2020 skin. If you just uh, Google Miles Morales 2020, it's the first image that pops up. It's a pretty cool suit. So um, if this is going to be a, uh, whether it's the second pre-order skin, I don't think it is. I'm pretty sure it's going to be the Into the Spider-Verse skin, but um, it's pretty cool that they're bringing in Miles' suits. He doesn't have a whole lot, so I'm sure that they're trying to cram in as many as they can. Um, they might be all of them. It might be all of the Miles Morales suits in this game. Who knows? But it uh, looks pretty good. The graphics are looking fantastic. It does look like, according to the Game Informer article, that they will be using the updated Peter Parker model for the uh, for Miles Morales Spider-Man. Uh, I figure that this was kind of the reason that they went back and uh, essentially retconned it from the first Spider-Man game. I understand all the stuff. We've talked about it before. I don't want to get back into it, but um, it makes sense that if they're going through that kind of recasting process for the face, uh, they'd want it to match up across both games, especially since with the Ultimate Edition, they're going to be bundled up together. So, cool, whatever. Um, but the game looks gorgeous. I We got our first look at Gonki. Um, I love it. Gonki Lee officially in the game. Uh, he's been teased since uh, the ver since I think the second trailer of uh, Spider-Man PS4. So it was cool to finally like actually see him see him on this listed as such. Uh, Gonki is just a fantastic Spider-Man character um, that the MCU completely ripped off of to make their own Ned Leeds. But um, anyway, but the game looks gorgeous. I can't wait to jump into it. It, it's going to be a good time. It's looking really, really good, and I'm really excited about it. Uh, some less exciting news as we head into comics news. Uh, we have the announcement that Ryan Otley will be leaving The Amazing Spider-Man with issue number 850. Uh, this basically comes off the heels of a 20-issue run that Otley has been part of alongside Nick Spencer on the title. Um He's a busy guy, and he did uh, talk about in this announcement that he has another Marvel project on the horizon, so that's exciting. I'm a big fan of Ryan Otley's art. Um, he is known, I think, mostly for the Invincible comic alongside Robert Kirkman. So um, I'm excited to see where he goes from here. Uh, as for Amazing Spider-Man, uh, Pat Gleason has been doing a lot of covers, has even done a couple guest spots in the actual Spider-Man book, so I wouldn't be surprised if he's named as the next uh, ongoing uh, artist going forward with that, so who knows? But I think, regardless, Ryan Otley is going to jump into another fantastic book, and The Amazing Spider-Man is going to be in good hands. Speaking of Ryan Otley-type uh, stuff, jumping into TV news, Invincible, the Invincible animated series, got its first official trailer uh, this past weekend as part of the virtual New York Comic Con, and it looks real good. Animation looks really clean, the character designs are great, the voice cast, oh my god, the voice cast. So so good and there's a little like subtle tweak that they've done with uh, Mark Grayson's character he's the main character if you haven't been reading Invincible you know nothing about it Mark Grayson is the main character who also goes by the superhero name Invincible um, since they have Steve Ewan uh, doing the Steven Ewan doing the uh, 
the voice acting for Mark Grayson. They've made like subtle tweaks to his character design in the show to make him appear more Asian. Um, I can't say, you know, for sure that that is a, uh, is a conscious and purposeful change, but I would assume so, and it makes me excited. I I always love seeing more Asian characters in fiction, especially in my comic books. I love Asian characters in my comic books, so um, I'm really excited about that. Representation is a big thumbs up from me. We also got our first look at Modok, which is apparently going to be stop motion. I had no idea about this. I didn't. Uh, maybe I missed it. They had announced it before or whatnot, but the Hulu. Um, Modoc animated series featuring Patton Oswalt as the voice of Modoc seems to be stop motion and it looks like it's going to be a workplace comedy with him inside I'm assuming aim uh, I'm excited for this it looks cool the uh, aesthetic is really fun stop motion is such a lost art at this point the last stop motion that I really remember um seeing to be honest with you is probably uh kubo and the two strings and that was kind of a mixture of uh stop motion and cgi so i'm looking forward to this it should be a really good time and then also in tv news kind of the big news for me this week at least was that we got some long-awaited info on the HBO Green Lantern series. For a long time, ever since they announced Green Lantern Corps will be coming to HBO Max, we've been waiting with bated breath to find out what the hell is going on with this show, and finally, this past weekend, we got some news about it. Green Lantern Corps will be officially retitled Green Lantern for the HBO Max series. Ten episodes in this first season, each an hour long. Um, The show is going to be focusing on some less are known Green Lanterns, which I'm really excited about. Um, let me pull up the uh, official announcement here. Let me see here. Da, 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 da. The uh, let's see here. The uh, logline states as thus. From, a- from DC and HBO Max and Berlanti Productions comes a bold adaptation of the iconic comic book franchise. A saga spanning decades and galaxies, Green Lantern will depict the adventures of a multitude of lanterns, including Guy Gardner, Jessica Cruz, Simon Baz, and Alan Scott, Earth's first Green Lantern, who, true to the comics, is a gay man, and many more. The series will also include fan favorites such as Sinestro and Kilowog, as well as introduce new heroes to the ranks of the Green Lantern Corps. I think that's awesome. Um, First off, Jessica Cruz, Simon Baz, Alan Scott. Hell yes. We don't know, you know, we don't get as much love for them as we should. Um, And I'm glad that they're kind of looking towards the lesser known Green Lanterns because for a lot of people, myself included, we just kind of assumed this was going to be like a Hal Jordan, Jon Stewart, Buddy Cop show. But no, uh, even though they might come down the line, they are conspicuously absent from this log line, as is Kyle Rayner, but I'm sure he's going to show up because he's the best Green Lantern ever. Um, And we also have Guy Gardner here, which I'm excited about. I am a sucker for Guy Gardner stories. Um... I've always been a big fan of his. He's just, he's such a dick. (laughs) Um, And I'm really excited to get to know more of these characters. I'm a huge Jessica Cruz, Mark. I really am. In fact, if you go back in the archives, I have an episode where I ranked every single uh, Green Lantern of Sector 2814, including some hidden gems that you might not know about. And I am so excited to get more Jessica Cruz. And I know that Diane Guerrera is chomping at the bit to jump into this. We still don't have, like, this doesn't say anything about whether it's going to be live action or um, or 
animated. I'm going to assume until they say otherwise that it's going to be live action, especially with it being HBO Max and all that stuff. Um, but this sounds really, really cool. Uh, actually sticking with the new kind of continuity of Alan Scott being a closeted gay man in the 1940s is really... Um, I think is a great idea, and they do mention here a saga spanning decades and galaxies. So we might get some uh, different time periods. We might get some period piece stuff with Alan Scott in the 40s, fingers crossed. Um, I would really, really love that. And then we also still get mainstays like Sinestro and Kilowog. Uh, it'd be cool if they do like the slow burn with Sinestro, him joining the core, seeing him you know, become the greatest Green Lantern as he was known before he uh, ended up, you know, turning to the yellow side of the force. Um, but I'm really, really looking forward to this. It is going to be um, executive produced and written by Seth Graham Smith, uh, who has worked on um, a bunch of stuff, uh, including the, let's see here, uh, he co-wrote the Lego Batman movie, Love, uh, along with uh, 2012's Dark Shadows, uh, Pride and Prejudice, and zombies so really he he knows what he's doing with genre storytelling um mark guggenheim and greg berlanti who are kind of the heads of the arrowverse are also attached to this as well as jeff john sarah Schechter, and dave madden who have had their hands in dc tv for a very long time so i'm excited for this this sounds really really cool i can't wait to get more information about this um and i'm really looking forward to seeing exactly what they are going to do here um heading into uh dc news or film news, speaking of DC news, uh, we've got some exciting stuff for The Batman, directed by Matt Reeves, starring uh, Robert Pattinson in the lead role. Uh, We've got some new set photos featuring uh, Bruce, Selina, and Penguin on the steps of, I'm assuming, some kind of courthouse or something. You just... Okay. I'm just going to speak directly to uh, to the Academy for what will it be um the oscars of 2023 i'm assuming um just give the makeup department here the oscar just do it because colin farrell looks completely unrecognizable as the penguin and i freaking love that it looks so good and it doesn't look like heavy makeup like you can tell it is heavy makeup because colin farrell just does not look like that but it looks so good they've done such a good job with that um we also got some Photos of Batman and Catwoman uh, in the park with their motorcycles like we've seen before. But coincidentally enough, there's something very interesting that has kind of set uh, Twitter ablaze. Uh, And it looks like that Batman has some kind of firearm on his hip in one of these photos. I am not going to make a snap judgment on what it is. I can only assume that it's going to be a grapple gun. Um, we've seen it before. We've seen it in pretty much every single Batman related media since the dawn of time. Um, but a lot of people are like, oh, he's using guns here. So I am not going to say that it's a gun at this point because we don't know. I'm going to stick to the tried and true that it is a grapple gun, but we'll have to see when the film does come out. Um, there is some unfortunate news with the Batman that I am uh, very disappointed in. Um, that is that it has been officially delayed to 2022. Um, I get it. It sucks. Um, but I get it. I understand. Uh, with Dune getting uh, pushed back, it was basically pushed to either the same weekend or right around the same weekend as the Batman was supposed to release next year. Um, so, And I can only assume that because Dune was finished and Batman is still in principal photography, they decided to push Batman back. 
it sucks. Um, but as long as they are given the time to make this film as good as it can be as safely as possible, then I'm all for it. And that brings us to a new DC slate. We have a new slate of DC films. We covered this a few weeks ago with the Marvel slate with all the, the delays going on there. So I figured just balance things out. One good turn deserves another. We should do all of the films for the DC side. So the next DC film that we are going to be getting, fingers crossed, is uh, Wonder Woman 84 on Christmas of 2020. That's right. It is still uh, it's still pegged to be on Christmas Day, December 25th of 2020. We'll see if that sticks around. We'll see if that uh, doesn't get delayed, which I assume it will be. Um, I'm hopeful, though, because I really want to see Wonder Woman 84. I've been wanting to see Wonder Woman 84, but we'll see. Uh, so that is going to be Christmas 2020. Next up on the slate, eight months later, if we're going by this current schedule, uh, The Suicide Squad on August 5th, 2021. Next up, we'll have The Batman on March 4th of 2022. And even though it is getting pushed back, 2022 is going to be a packed year because March 4th, 2022 is the Batman. Then later that year, on November 8th, 2022, we're getting The Flash. Then on December 16th of that year, if it doesn't get delayed, uh, Aquaman 2 is going to release. So we're getting Batman, Flash, and Aquaman all in the same year. 2022 is going to be packed. And then rounding out the group here, we've got Shazam! Fury of the Gods on June 2nd, 2023. Uh, Black Adam is still uh, TBD as of this point. They're still in early production phases. They've done some casting. Uh, but I can only assume that they're going to want to capitalize on the Shazam! film, the Shazam! Sam sequel releasing in 2023 so i could easily see black adam dropping in like maybe august or september of 2023 to kind of balance that out maybe closer to like november but uh yeah so that is current your current dc film slate and then we've got two more pieces of film news here first off a quick one um if you're a fan of Mad Max, like I am, uh, you probably heard that f the Furiosa prequel is officially on the has officially started. Um, we've got the ball rolling for that, and it will feature Anya Taylor-Joy as a young Furiosa, uh, kind of taking up the mantle from Charlize Theron. I hope they bring her back for this, because she made that role. Even if it's just like a bookend, like, oh, memories, and then it goes into it. But I really enjoy Anya Taylor-Joy. Um, she most recently played uh, Magic in New Mutants, which I still haven't seen, but I heard was terrible. Um, but I like her as an actress. I really, I think she was the quote unquote final girl in uh, Split. And she's very good at what she does. She's a great actress, so I'm excited to see what she brings to the role. And then we also have Chris Hemsworth and Yahya Abdul-Mateen II in this film, which I think is awesome. Uh, so that is going to be uh, written and directed by George Miller. The man himself is coming back for this, so I'm excited about that. But again, please bring Charlize Theron back for this. She, she deserves to be in this somehow. And then finally, a bit of a controversial pick here. Uh, Doctor Strange has been announced that he will be joining up with uh, Tom Holland's Peter Parker in Spider-Man 3. Um, I would ordinarily be like, cool, whatever, sure, go for it. But um, they mentioned that he will be stepping into the mentor role left behind by Tony Stark. And I gotta say... As someone who enjoys Spider-Man, I like to think I enjoy Spider-Man. I like to think I'm a Spider-Man fan. 
I don't need another mentor figure for Peter Parker in Spider-Man 3. I thought we got past this. The one saving grace of uh, Tony Stark dying at the end of Avengers Endgame, spoilers, I guess, um, is that, you know, Peter Parker would be able to stand on his own. They went through two whole films in Homecoming and in Far From Home about Peter Parker stepping out from the shadow of Tony Stark, and now they're just going to saddle him up with Doctor Strange? Don't get me wrong. I love Benedict Cumberbatch's Doctor Strange, especially in the last two movies he was in, uh, Infinity War and Endgame. I thought he was magic. No pun intended. But, like, I don't need him to be more involved in Spider-Man's story. This is a perfect Spider-Man story solo outing with him having his uh, identity released to the world uh, possibly Craven the Hunter we don't know but I just I feel like there are too many people popping up in this now um, it's just it's it's too much for me it's too much for me um, I hope that they do something to tighten this up I get that since the whole shake up with phase four again go back a couple episodes I think we talked about it in the uh the news segment where we went through the slate of Marvel films um he is going to be in the middle of the multiverse arc that's going that seems to be kind of going on in phase four but it's just too much I just want a spider-man film why can't we just have a spider-man film so but that's just me. Um, I know some people are, you know, feel the opposite. They think it fits in perfectly. Um, if you believe that way, f- please feel free. I have no ill will towards you. I just, for me, I don't need him in it. But that is going to wrap up the news for this week. We are now going to mosey on into the main course of this episode, the entree, if you will, which is a full in-depth look at one of my favorite Halloween traditions, which is Over the Garden Wall. So... Here's the thing about this episode and about this podcast kind of as a whole. Um, I try to be as honest and as candid and as um, descriptive as I can whenever I cover a topic um, that we are focusing on when it comes to this podcast. You know, there's a reason that this podcast is called Geek Explained. It's because I'm explaining things. Um, but frankly, and I want to be completely just straight up, upfront, honest with you, no amount of gushing over this series is going to properly um, geek-splain to you just how good Over the Garden Wall is. There is something to be said about this season. People love this season. Halloween season, uh, the fall season, my favorite season of the entire year is the fall season. Um, and there's something so inherently Halloween, inherently fall about Over the Garden Wall that I try to make it a one of my missions every single year to watch this series and every single year i watch it and i fall in love with it more and more and more um over the garden wall 
is this incredible little mini-series. It's a little animated mini-series from Cartoon Network, uh, originally released in 2014. And we are going to be talking about this show as part two of Geektober. Geektober, every single week of the month of October, going to be covering something else in the horror Halloween uh realm and i really really wanted to talk about over the garden wall because it is fall halloween perfection i really really believe that um i am going to be uh as spoiler free as i can about this because i want you to watch this um i normally do this at the end of the segment but Go watch this. It's on Hulu. Uh, If you have Hulu, go check it out. Each episode is 11 minutes. There's 10 episodes in all, so you can knock it, the entire thing out, in probably around like an hour and a half, two hours. Um, It is absolutely worth your time. And the reason that I love it so much is because of how simple it is, while at the same time, how much went into putting it together. And that really all comes down to Patrick McHale. Patrick McHale is the creator of Over the Garden Wall. And this guy had been working with uh, Cartoon Network for a while at the point that this this show was released. He was initially a storyboard artist on The Marvelous Misadventures of Flapjack. uh, And in 2004... He had this vision for this series about two brothers dealing with some dark fantasy horror aspects. Um, And in 2006, he was given the opportunity by Cartoon Network to pitch it to the network. And while it wasn't exactly what uh, they were looking for at the time, Mikhail kept working on it. It was something that he had near and dear to his heart, and so for years, he continued to work on his concept, work on the pitch, um, and the initial pitch was entitled Tome of the Unknown, where two brothers, Walter and Gregory, found themselves into essentially uh, limbo and came across the devil in so to speak, uh, named Old Scratch. And this devil-like character basically told them, I will lead you home, I will get you out of limbo, if you read every single page of the Tome of the Unknown, this book here. And as soon as Walter and Gregory agree to this deal, uh, Old Scratch basically starts tearing pages out of the book and flings them all over this uh, limbo... Uh, realm. And so the series involves Walter and Gregory looking for these pages, and each episode would be a different page that they were looking for. And initially, you know, this was the the idea was um, this was going to be a dark, sort of more mature animated series, and Cartoon Network didn't really know how to feel about including the literal devil um, in an animated series. So Mikhail kept working at it. He kept working at it, kept looking for different angles to come to, and then he started working on a little something called Adventure Time. Adventure Time, he was part of the production team, he was a very successful member of that production team, and the success of Adventure Time allowed him to go back and rework Tome of the Unknown into something that he called Over the Garden Wall. And as he, as he stated in several interviews, um, 
he wanted it specifically to be a miniseries because he believed that it would be um it would stand alone and be and have more of an impact than it ever would as like a film or an ongoing animated series. Also, he didn't want to format it into a film because the way that he had kind of scripted it out, the way he had structured the story, it wouldn't really work super well for a film format. Uh, the initial episode count was 18 episodes, but they cut it down to 10 to uh, kind of tighten up the story as well as deal with uh, budgetary restrictions. And they changed the premise a little bit for this story alongside the title going from Tome of the Unknown to uh, Over the Garden Wall, as well as a quick little name change, changing Walter to Wirt. So, the presence... The presence. The premise of Over the Garden Wall involves two bro- two brothers, once again, uh, Wirt and Greg, or Gregory, depending on what you want to call him, and their frog that Gregory had found prior to the beginning of the first episode, wandering around a forest called the Unknown, trying to get home. And in every single episode, they come across some kind of dark fantasy aspect. In the first episode, they come across an old mill and run into someone called the Huntsman. More on him later. Um, in episode two, they come to some, they come to a, a little village called uh, Pottsfield um, and get involved with the very strange customs that are being uh, carried out by the villagers there. Each episode subsequently gets a little bit more strange, a little bit more dark. Uh, there are certain aspects that I am completely surprised would make it onto uh, Cartoon Network, but it really does come down to Wirt and Greg trying to get home while at the same time avoiding something in the dark called the beast and what i love so much about this um about this show uh one of the big things that i love is the aesthetic um it's very uh again very fall oriented the uh trees are constantly changing colors from the beginning of the show we go straight kind of into fall and by the end of the show it's winter so this series really does encapsulate my favorite time of year but also it was a very direct um it was a very direct uh result of Patrick McHale looking at old postcards, old New England postcards, that if you look at these, because I did a Google search, I looked at them, they are exactly the same aesthetic. It's crazy. Um, There's something very serene, yet at the same time a little unsettling with how much shadow there is. It's very idyllic with the trees, the forests, the, uh, the grass, but when you start to like look at it for long enough, you start to see shadows you start to see little places that things could hide and it provides probably the greatest um aesthetic that you could ask for in a show like this um greg and wirt are two characters that i absolutely have to uh spotlight here because they are our two leads uh wirt is an incredibly neurotic uh character voiced by elijah wood he is fantastic and he is uh prone to being a little pessimistic and also kind of wallowing in his own misery at different times in the show he will talk about you know oh woe is me and like go into spouting off some like nonsense poetry uh you come to find out as well that he plays the clarinet he's a band kid though he doesn't want to join marching band um and he's just incredibly neurotic and indecisive and Wirt was a character because i feel like with how different the two characters are and i'm going to get to greg in just a second um 
you will kind of lean towards one of them with who you connect to more. I connected to Wirt. I was a band kid in high school. I played the alto saxophone. Shout out to my saxophone brothers and sisters. Um, I was very neurotic. I still am super neurotic, if you can't tell by this podcast at this point. Um, And I am prone to indecision a lot of times. Um, And Wirt's character is so fun because he is often the uh, neurotic straight man to Greg's just all over the place character. Greg is the younger brother of the two, and he is someone who acts entirely on impulse. To contrast with Wirt, you know, fighting against himself at every turn, unable to make a decision, uh, Greg works on impulse. He is someone who just like, this needs to get done? Okay, let's do it. And he just runs off to go do it. Um, The two characters are visually very striking. Uh, Wirt looks like every Travelocity gnome you've ever seen, (laughs) while um, Greg is pretty much in your um, old school Johnny Appleseed suit. So they're very, they have very distinct animation styles and the entire show does, which I really love. The show is unlike any other um, show that I can think off the top of my head when it comes to design, when it comes to um, ambiance, when it comes to the themes, the tone of the general story. I really, really dig it, especially when it comes to the animated side. But Gregory is this character who is always trying to find the fun aspects. There are numerous little musical numbers across the show, and he is usually at the center of them. Um, He is just this amazing little uh, ball of energy and fun and happiness, and a lot of that comes down to his voice actor. He is voiced by, let me pull this up real quick, um, da, 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 da. he's voiced by Colin Dean I'm not super familiar with Colin Dean as far as I know um, let's see here uh, let's see what else he's done he's played uh, Tiffany and some candy kids in Adventure Time um, he plays Lincoln Loud in The Loud House um, I haven't watched any of those I'm going to admit but um yeah, so he is an experienced voiceover actor, and him and Elijah would have such great chemistry and such great rapport between these two characters. Gregory is also accompanied always by his frog, um, who he comes up with a new name for every single episode, and the kind of hijinks that they get into uh, because of a combination of Wirt's indecision and Greg's impulsiveness. Uh, provides the crux of every single episode. And they are accompanied by, I would say, our third lead in the show, and that is Beatrice, voiced by Melanie Linsky. Uh, she's fantastic. And what she does really well that I um, that I uh, was surprised about when I first watched this was that uh, Beatrice is a bluebird. Beatrice is a bluebird who comes across the two boys and promises to help them get home. And in a typical fairy tale or uh, fantasy format that means she's very much the hey listen character very much the navi uh from ocarina of time Dora's mask that kind of thing um but she is not happy she's not jovial she's not excited to help them she is this sarcastic sassy character that i absolutely love and really does a great job um to complement 
Wirt and Gregory's characters. She is essentially the character who comes into the to any situation and provides what I would say the viewer's uh, outlook on things. You know, the two boys run across the woodsman for the first time. He is terrifying, and she says, nope, all right, I'm gone, bye. And there are many, many times across this across this show that she provides um, some really excellent commentary, not just on the events, but also on the characters. And as the show goes on, you start to see her uh, grow a little bit more fond of the two boys that she's helping out. And she has some secrets of her own that she is dealing with in the, uh, in the show that do come to light as the story progresses and the three of them work really well together they're always regardless of the three of them having different ideas of how a situation would go all three of them are always together in those situations and it's something that i really enjoy and you would think would may get old uh as we go from episode to episode but surprisingly never does they're um their uh, their relationships with each other really do a great job about um, developing over time while also retaining some of the uh, original... I don't want to say spite, but like... Um, Beatrice never stops being a sarcastic smartass. Uh, Wirt never stops questioning everything around him. And Gregory never stops to think for a second to consider other people's feelings. Um... As the story progresses, you really get to see them grow and change, though, as well. And as they go along, you get to see more and more of the unknown, which I would... I could almost say is our fourth main character because like any good story, the environment, the setting is a character in itself. The unknown is this endless forest that provides uh, different things for different people. Um, It is essentially like this place you can get lost in and you will find yourself in very either idyllic or incredibly terrifying situations um i won't again i won't spoil things but there are certain uh witches houses that you that you see that are get a little terrifying um as well as uh i would say definitely keep an eye out on the weird stuff that uh that happens in Pottsfield. it is Worth the time to pay attention to the little details. But the unknown as it is, is an incredible... is an incredible setting because for the limited run that the show has just 10 episodes, it feels like we're only like scratching the surface of what is inside the unknown. We're only seeing a few different stories of characters who are residing in the unknown. And there is, you know, thousands more stories that could be going on at the same time it's a fascinating world that while i want to learn more about at the same time i am content in knowing that this is something that uh leaves a lot to um to the imagination which i really really like um there's some there's a There's a description that I always give people when I'm recommending uh, Over the Garden Wall, and that's if you took Studio Ghibli, you know, stuff like Spirited Away, Howl's Moving Castle, Kiki's Delivery Service, and you crossed it with um, Brothers Grimm fairy tales, you would get Over the Garden Wall. And if you're a fan of either of those things or both of those things, this is the show for you. It is so, so good. Um, There are some other key characters that I really want to talk about. Uh, The Huntsman. I mentioned him before. He is an incredible character who I could honestly, you know, 
have 10 more episodes just about the Huntsman. Um, he has been on a journey for a very long time uh, and is consistently in conflict with the otherworldly uh, presence known as the Beast. Uh, the Woodsman is voiced by Christopher Lloyd, who many people know as Doc Brown, uh, but has played just hundreds of thousands of roles, and this might be one of my favorites. Uh, Christopher Lloyd does such a good job at getting you to both uh, root for the Huntsman as well as be slightly suspicious of him because as the story goes on you start to see little things and you know you get uh, testimonies from other people that may kind of throw into question his uh, his allegiances and his um, his motivations but he's so compelling as a character whenever he shows up because you know that again this is just a snapshot in his life. This is just a snapshot in his story, and he has been going on for a while before the events of the story, and his story isn't exactly done by the end of it, which I really like. And he is, uh, as I mentioned just a second ago, juxtaposed by the Beast. Now, the Beast, again, I could just talk about for hours, just going into like the little details of the Beast, talking about why he is this incredible force of nature. But he is given life by Samuel Ramey. Um, let me look at his, uh, his, let's see here. I want to see his filmography here. Um, what else has he done besides, um, that's weird. Let me see here. I'm going to vamp for a second. I should have had this pulled up. But um, da, 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 played by Samuel Ramey. Yes, let's check out his IMDb. Samuel Ramey has played, let's see here, a lot of stuff that I haven't heard of. Looks like a lot of, um, a lot of TV, uh, some Macbeth in the 80s. So he's been around for a while. Um, Over the Garden Wall, as of his IMDb, is the last thing that he was in. Um, it looks like he's mostly involved in uh, music, which you can absolutely tell by the Beast's character because he is this character who you will see... Um, or rather you'll hear singing this little melody this like oh, la 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 just off in the distance and even though it's a very like oh yeah whatever it can be very unsettling when you just hear it out in the dark and his um his presence throughout the series is terrifying because you could be in a completely normal situation and then you just hear like woodsman and you turn around and he's this shadowy figure all you see is his the whites of his eyes it is terrifying watching him and his presence and his influence over not just um, the Huntsman, but over the entire unknown is very well utilized across the story. There's an episode where um, Wirt and Gregory are talking to uh, some other characters like, oh, you know the Beast? And they're like, oh my God, we know the Beast. Yeah, we know the Beast. Uh, he, you know, he finds people who are lost and like, you know, does make sure they never get home like it's it's very well done how they uh bring this character into the story organically how they bring him through the story without having him needing to appear in every single episode and yet he is the overarching threat he is the uh shadow that is following these two boys and is looking to make sure that they stay in the unknown forever 
Um, but overall, the story is really um, is really held up not just by these main overarching characters, but also smaller characters as well. Uh, there's a character named Auntie Whispers and her uh, her niece Lorna. Um, I don't want to talk too much about them, but I absolutely love them. Their story is. Uh, very subversive in its presentation, and it's a story that I personally think is one of the best of the entire show. Um, there are also characters, there are also like kind of more ancillary ancillary characters. Um, there is an episode that is spent inside of a tavern filled with ancillary characters, and each one of them is given an is just given a great amount of weight without them having to be explained further than, you know, essentially their titles. But overall, the show is just packed full, not just of incredible settings, strange and incredible um, uh, characters and communities, but also just stories, just stories for each episode. Each episode, while being part of the overarching season or the overarching series, is also in its own way self-contained. So you can drop in and drop out at any point. The only one I would say, or the only couple that I would say is the uh, last three are very interconnected with how the with um, their story kind of working their way through. But the rest of the episodes, you can just drop in, drop out, whatever you want, um, and you will get a full, complete story with each episode. Uh, speaking of episodes, I want to talk about my three favorite episodes right now. Um, I mean, it's kind of a treat because one of them is a two-parter. But um, my favorite episodes, first off, I got to talk about episode four. Uh, episode four, let me pull up the title here. Um, da, 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 da. episode four is entitled songs of the dark lantern. And this is what I'm talking. This is what I was mentioning earlier with the, uh, with the tavern, uh, Greg, Wirt and Beatrice find their way to this tavern in the middle of the night. And they meet these characters within who are all focused on, um, telling stories about their titles and they are so in their make it their mission essentially to find out what um what Wirt's title is so like you know that we have the tavern keeper the highwayman the best character um the baker the tailor like all of these characters and they're trying to find uh Wirt's role his his uh, title and how they go about finding it is just really really fun each of the characters tells a story with their title why they're that way um, I really like it it's a really fun episode and, and I think it's a great episode to introduce people to um, the first episode of course I think is a great introduction to the story but Songs of the Dark Lantern I think is a great uh, entry point into the story if you want to show you know a friend like this is one episode that I think that you um, will give you pretty much everything you need to know about the story um, episode four does it and so does episode six probably my favorite episode out of all of them uh, which is lullaby in frogland and that sounds just as strange as you would think um, our characters find themselves onto a uh, steamboat going along the river and the weird thing about the steamboat is it is populated all by uh very classically uh mark twain dressed-esque frogs uh 
And the hijinks that happens in this episode is twofold. Um, and it's just a fantastic little, again, look into how different some of the communities in the unknown can be. Just smacked the mic earlier, just a second there. Um, and really gives you a feel for the tone of the show. This is another episode um, that I would say you could drop people into though um maybe not so much as episode four episode four i think really stands on its own while episode uh episode six is not just a great episode for um the story but also is a great payoff for some of the um, subplots going on in the series up to that point. And then, of course, another favorite episode of mine is episode 10. Uh, episode 10, as the finale of the show, is as perfect as you can make a, uh, a finale for a story like this. Uh, it wraps up literally every single character that we've met along the way, which is crazy in 11 minutes. Uh, I was showing my partner this for the first time this year, actually this past week, and after we finished episode nine, she's like, wait, we have one episode left? And I was like, yeah. And she's like, is it like a double-sized episode? And I'm like, no, it's just 11 minutes again. And she's like, they have a lot of stuff to wrap up. And I'm like, yeah, they do. Uh, and I will say they do it, I think, as perfectly as you can. Um, but part of that, I will have to admit, is due to ambiguous storytelling. And what I mean by that is that at the end of the series, again, no spoilers, but at the end of the series, there are still some questions that you as a viewer will have. I have. I have always had, ever since I watched it for the first time. And I am okay with the idea that you will never truly get the answers to those questions. I think it's really telling, especially for me, um, how well you've told the story by how okay your audience is with questions being left unanswered. And when you are able to tell a story in 10, in 10 episodes, um, answer the majority of the questions, but still leave some huge questions left unanswered and yet feel as though the story is complete... I think that is the mark of a great story and of a great storyteller. Um, everyone who worked on this show, from the cast to the crew, uh, Mikhail, all the way down to, you know, the score, which I think is incredible. Uh, I have the soundtrack downloaded on my phone, and I listen to it every now and then because the, um, just the tone and the feeling that you get from this soundtrack and you'll have gotten a snippet of it from the intro as you heard the intro to uh the segment um it just transports you to another time and i love that when a story can do that and still at the same time be um i would say timeless then you have succeeded as a story uh these each of these stories has their own merit, like no uh, one episode feels like another episode, which I really enjoy and does a great job in standing out when it comes to the chapters. You can easily make a make an argument for every single one of these episodes being the best episode of the series, which I don't think you could say about a whole lot of shows, especially um, animated series. But I would have to say that Over the Garden Wall is one of the most complete stories that I've ever witnessed, ever watched, ever experienced. And 
with it now being the Halloween season, with it now being the uh, fall spooky season, this is absolutely the best story that you could be watching around this time. Um, it's got frights, it's got fun, it's got laughs, it's got songs, and Overall, it's got a ton of heart from every single character to every single location to every single story. Every single episode is filled to the brim with heart, and I just think that that's awesome. That's what you want out of stories like this, a story that can transport you to another time, a story that can have you on the edge of your seat trying to see are these two little brother are these two brothers going to get home are they going to find their way out of the unknown and when you start to get the bigger picture of the story it becomes even more fascinating to go back and rewatch certain episodes no matter how many times i've watched it i always find something different i always find something new uh, and that really speaks to the amount of just the level of storytelling that they include in this uh, in this show. So overall, go watch it. Like I said, it is um, 10 incredible episodes that you don't have to commit too much time to. It's on Hulu. I make it a point to watch it every single year because it is the perfect Halloween story. It is the perfect fall story. And it's a story that keeps me going back over the garden wall. It is now time for the weekly review. This is the segment of our show where I review something weekly. Specifically, we're reviewing the season finale of season two of The Boys entitled What I Know. And wow, just wow, seriously, like I I thought when we talked about it last week, I thought that you know, the the finale of the season was going to have to do a lot to top the cliffhanger of last week's episode with everyone's heads exploding in the uh, congressional hearing. And Jesus Christ, like the amount of stuff that happens in this episode, I was astounded that they fit it all into an hour. I could not believe it. I kept looking at the... Um, the episode length, and the amount of stuff that they cover, the amount of loose ends they tied up, was astounding. This might be my favorite episode of the entire season, if not the entire show. And, you know, I think that it has a lot to do with just how much care has been put into these characters and into this world. Uh, for example, the episode kicks off with a really uncomfortable um Old PSA video where uh, Homelander is going through um, basically active shooter drills, but they're active soup drills, and it's really like, oh, yikes, I don't know how I feel about this, I'm not a fan, thanks for that, um, but we're also dealing with a lot of the uh, fallout with the things going on uh, from last week's episode, as well as the entire um really the entire season, uh, the president, because of the uh, attacks, the head explosions and whatnot uh, that happened last episode, officially approved Compound V for public usage. And, um, 
man, just the the idea it it's it's interesting to me because this is you know there are a lot of parallels I think um, and I might be reaching here who knows but I think there are a lot of parallels with the idea of um, of regulation with firearms I think that there's like this weird um, juxtaposition that you find in it you know there's this discussion there's this uh, rebuttal that everyone has where it's just like oh you know we're having you know a lot of shootings maybe we should you know regulate guns we should regulate the people who can get guns and all of it always turns into a well you know if you're taking guns away you're taking guns away from the good people where the bad people are just going to get them anyway um and i think that it's pretty apropos here it makes sense in this where it's just like you know the you know the super villain are popping up with their own compound fee so we got to make it you know available for those who can afford it um it's just weird it's uncomfortable but in a good way like it's um i think forcing us to have conversations and look at a lot of the um current events that are going on and really keying into them and through this lens makes it a little bit more palatable to have those kinds of discussions uh there's this quick like moment too where um I love the development of Stormfront over the course of the season where at first she was like, oh, she's this woke, like not gonna, you know, take, gonna take no for an answer um, into this just full blown racist by the end of this episode or by the beginning of this episode. Uh, she's talking about how I think she's talking to a uh, Homelander about how um, Edgar has had meetings with the president and she's like, you know, He's uh, he's actually really helpful, especially for his kind. And I'm like, oh, God, this is so uncomfortable. And it makes me so like uh, they've done a really great job. And um, specifically, Aya Cash has done an incredible job making this character so multi-layered while also making her incredibly despicable. I really, really like it. I think it's just it's one of the best uh, comic book villains we've gotten in a very long time. And this Stormfront. Um, is wildly different from the comic store f- Stormfront, and I really like that. I like the direction that they went with this character. Um, as we come to find out as well, uh, Edgar isn't just meeting with uh, the president. He's also meeting with a couple different people, such as uh, the Collective, the head of the Church of the Collective, uh, meets with him to discuss bringing the Deep and A-Train back into the uh into the fold into the seven and they dropped some interesting uh little nuggets here with the idea that stormfront because she is so old might have been one of the original members of the church of the collective i don't know what what exactly um if they're gonna pull on that thread or not uh, especially with how this episode ended but um the uh the discussion i think is really interesting because they end up bringing the uh, Edgar ends up agreeing to bring the deep back, but not a train specifically, uh, because I know he says the excuse is like, you know, one is, um, redemption two is weakness, but like specifically he says, I'm trying to cater to Stormfront, and she does not like A-Train. We both know why. And I think that's so interesting, um, especially for Edgar being a man of color. I think that's so fascinating, having all of these weird, like, multi-layered corporate uh, backstories and uh, doublespeak. It's really, I think it's really cool and something that the show has done really well. Um 
Meanwhile, while all of this is going on, Becca has just escaped from the house after uh, Homelander and Stormfront took Ryan, and she's found herself um, over to Butcher. I don't know how she escaped. I'm assuming that means, like, she could have escaped at any time. She just chose not to because it was safe. Um, but it's really interesting finally having Becca and Butcher together again, and I really I liked having them together. They have a really good chemistry. Um so Butcher basically strikes a deal with Edgar saying that, you know, I am going to rescue this kid. I am going to turn this kid over to you because he is the biggest piece of leverage that you can have over Homelander. And you are going to leave me and Becca alone for the rest of our lives. And it's such a weird thing because it's like there's a large part of me. Um, and I'm sure other people feel the same way, that wants to root for Butcher because Butcher is essentially one of our leads. Um, he's the leader of the boys. He's got such a great uh, rapport with Huey and the rest of his team. But at the same time, we forget that Butcher is a despicable person and that his um, every action that he's taken uh, since Becca was, since Becca disappeared has really formed him into this just terrible person um and so i really like how they've uh layered him he is just as interesting as any character on this show and showing that he is willing to you know let his prejudices um influence his decisions especially when it comes to becca i think is fascinating and i love that aspect of his character uh we also get to see that uh the conversation that edgar and the head of the church of the collective i can't remember his name for the life of me um was overheard by a train who decides you know what forget this i'm gonna go help uh huey starlight and he steals files from the collective and gives them to huey starlight exposing Stormfront, and I, I like this. I like that um, A Train was given this spot. I wish that we had gotten a more concrete, um, more concrete resolution with him. Though I'm assuming now that he'll be back with uh, the Seven at the end of this episode, um, and into season three, he will get more of a spotlight. Because I really liked what they were doing with him this season. He didn't get a lot. I will admit he didn't he wasn't, you know, up front and center, but I really liked the um the story, the arc that he had for this season. I'm glad that it kind of came all, you know, um it came all the way back around. The circle is now complete with uh him actually helping Huey and Starlight. Uh, meanwhile, Homelander and Ryan had probably my favorite subplot in the entire episode um where Homelander had not one, but two good parenting moments. Uh, it was really freaking weird. Um, first off, like we, because we have gotten this weird, um, we've gotten this kind of uh, status quo between Homelander and Ryan, where Homelander is that, um, that deadbeat dad who comes to find his son and is trying to raise him to be just like him. And we've seen the terrible stuff he's done when he pushed him off the roof, when he's trying to convince uh, Ryan to leave Becca, all this stuff. But it something that I found really fascinating here, and this, of course, is all on Anthony Starr, um, who plays Homelander, is that there were, there were a couple moments in this episode where he became incredibly compelling and very easy to empathize with um him ryan and storefront go to this uh 
I can only describe it as like a Chuck E. Cheese style like Vought sponsored restaurant that is like, you know, all the kind of restaurants you would see at like a Disneyland. But uh, there's memorabilia, there's statues and posters all over. Um, and they sit down and they're, you know, there to have a meal. And then all of these fans start flooding them, just trying to get pictures. And Homelander and Stormfront, they're used to it. They're just taking pictures, taking selfies and all this stuff. But Ryan has led a very sheltered life. He's had a very sheltered childhood. And so he is completely overwhelmed. And I kind of expected when I was watching this, I was like, oh, Homelander is going to, you know, ignore him and Ryan is going to freak out and he's going to laser some people by accident. But they completely turned it around by having Homelander suddenly realize like, oh my God, Ryan's having a really tough time. Hey, and he like picks him up. He's like, okay, we're getting out of here. We're getting out of here. And I was like, did he just have a good parenting moment where he took Ryan away from the super stressful time he was having? It was just, it was kind of heartwarming to be honest. And I was like, can like does homelander have the potential to be a good dad i think it's really um i don't know i really like that moment and then later on when they're talking about we're gonna help train you and all that stuff and um homelander's like you know trying to get ryan to use his laser beams and ryan just can't do it and homelander's like it's all right, man. It's all right. We'll, we'll come back to this later. I'm like, wait a second. Like, when did they do this weird 180 on it? Um, I can't I can't lie, though. I really liked this. I really liked getting this side of Homelander because we're so used to Homelander just being an absolute prick. And it was really cool to actually see him in this fatherly role. And of course, that was turned right the hell around by Stormfront talking about the quote unquote white genocide. And again, it's so, oh, it makes me so uncomfortable, but it's completely in line with her character. And even Homelander's just like, uh, okay. Like he's starting to get a little uncomfortable with it. Um, but I just, I really, really liked it. And this was a really nice kind of quiet moment, even though it was terrifying at the potential of Stormfront indoctrinating Ryan this way. Um, it was a really nice quiet moment to get us prepared for the storm that both, pun both intended and not intended, uh, that was about to come when the boys finally got to work. Uh, starting off with exposing Stormfront as a Nazi sympathizer and just ruining her reputation. Um sending her off to go deal with it. Uh, they get everything set up to draw Homelander away with this like sonic machine attack, um, leaving Ryan alone in the cabin where uh, Billy and Becca go and they grab Ryan and they leave. They leave with him. It's a successful mission. And by the time Homelander realizes what's happened, uh, he returns to the cabin. Or I should say, um, Butcher is Butcher gets this great moment where he sees Ryan and Becca and his whole thing is like, I am going to get Ryan away from Homelander. I'm going to turn him over to Vought and me and Becca are going to ride off in the sunset. But the moment, the moment that he sees Becca and Ryan together for the first time, he just, he, he gives into his, uh, his better, his better judgment and I really liked that. It's a great turn of phrase for him. It's a great turn of character um, where he just whisks Ryan away. And the and he tells uh, M.M. they get back. And M.M.'s like, what's going on? This wasn't part of the plan. And 
Billy's like, you need to take them and go. You need to take Becca. You need to take Ryan and get out of here. Uh, you're the only one I trust with this. And I really love that. And you find out that Vought, you know, sent this SWAT team in, who I assume was going to collect Ryan from Butcher, and Butcher's not there. But as the SWAT team are, like, realizing, oh, Butcher, you know, betrayed us, Butcher Butcher uh, backstabbed us, Homelander shows up. And the tension in this scene, you could cut it with a butter knife. I absolutely loved this. Homelander shows up, and he walks in just calm as he could be. And he's like, where's my son? And, you know, the SWAT, the Vat SWAT are just like, we don't know what to do in this situation. We don't know what's happening. And Homelander hears uh, uh, Edgar on the other side of the phone that Butcher left behind. You know, do you have the boy? Do you have the boy? And Homelander just kind of like takes a breath, turns around, and he shuts the door. And I'm like, oh, you guys are all dead. You're all dead. Sorry about your your damn luck, but you are all dead. And then he proceeds to massacre all of them. We only see him kill one guy, but the next time we see him, he's leaving the cabin and he is just covered in head to toe, head to toe in blood. And I just, oh, it was so cool. But meanwhile, um, MM is not able to get away with uh, Becca and, and Ryan because Stormfront shows up. Great moment where um, Stormfront just disables everybody except for starlight and kimiko and kimiko has this moment where she you know she's dealing with the ptsd that she's had this entire time but she pushes past it and i loved that for her character and so the two of them you know were facing off with stormfront and at one point they were overpowering her but then stormfront she's she's too powerful and so she's you know about to kill uh kimiko when or she does kill Kimiko, essentially, snaps her neck, and is about to kill Stormfront when suddenly Maeve shows up. I don't know how Maeve keeps doing this. Um, I don't know if they'll ever explain it, but I kind of love it, uh, where she just always seems to be able to show up to save Starlight when she needs her. Um, and it was a great little moment, a great callback to the whole girls get it done thing um, near the beginning of the season where Kimiko, who of course heals cause that's her, um, that's her power. Uh, her, uh, Starlight and Maeve just kick the shit out of Stormfront. And I just, uh, I loved it. I loved it. I loved it. Um, but Stormfront is able to escape when, or while, uh, Butcher is trying to get away with Becca and Ryan and she confronts them in the, in the, uh, in the forest and this just leads into that amazing moment when stormfront is about to kill uh about to kill becca and it flash it calls back to earlier in the episode when they're trying to get ryan to use his heat vision or his laser vision or whatever they want to call it um where they're like you just need to picture someone you really hate and it's this, oh, it's this masterful moment, masterful storytelling, where um, Ryan uses his laser vision, but because he's never really used it before, um, he just completely incinerates uh, Stormfront, just taking out her arm, both of her legs. Oh, Becca also gets to stab her in the uh, left eye, calling back to the uh, Stormfront from the comics. Uh, but he also 
ends up killing uh, Becca by accident. And it's terrifying. It is this moment when Butcher finally like wakes up and gets a steady of himself and he realizes what's happened. Uh, Stormfront is left in this like completely like unlivable state. Like if she's not dead, she's about to be like the like she's gonna be a vegetable. Um, but Becca is dying and Butcher knows this and Becca's like, it wasn't his fault. Please don't like, please take care of him. It wasn't his fault. It wasn't his fault. And she dies. And Butcher, because this entire adventure, this entire story from the very first episode of season one kicked off because Butcher has been looking for Becca. And then he finally had her back and had the chance to go live his life with her. And she dies in his arms. I know why they did it. It made me sad, but I know why they did it. And I kind of figured they were going to go in this direction. But what does that mean? Because Butcher already has the prejudices against Ryan. And now even more so because he killed his wife. And so you see Butcher pick up the crowbar. And I was like, are we about to go Jason Todd on this scenario? Um, But the answer really doesn't come for this situation because then homelander arrives covered in blood um when is he not right but he shows up and he's you know beckoning ryan and for a moment there's a moment there where i'm like okay he's gonna take ryan away and he's gonna somehow convince ryan that it was butcher's fault and all this stuff because he has finally had these like parenting these true like parenting moments with ryan in this uh in this episode and I was like, oh, he's going to he's gonna go with him. He's going to go with him. But then he goes, Ryan stands with Butcher. And I was like, that. if I was Ryan, I would not feel safe standing with Butcher. Standing with his, like, crowbar ready to bash his skull in. But, um, yeah, I was like, oh, my God. Like, it's, ugh. Uh, and then Homelander gets ready to incinerate um incinerate butcher and then Maeve with the gamble of the century basically tells homelander you're gonna leave them alone or i'm gonna release this and she shows the video that uh that her partner discovered earlier in the season of the plane crash from last season and she's like you go you do this blah 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 um i will release this to the world and homelander's like so what i'll say it's doctored all this stuff and then Maeve gets to the very core of his character, the very core of Homelander, and says, yeah, you might be able to get past it, but no one will ever love you again. And there's this moment where, like, you hear, like, the echoes of people chanting for Homelander. You know that that kind of validation is the only thing that he truly loves. And so he says, okay, and he leaves. And it was just, again... Like these characters, it's masterful storytelling, really well done character moments. And I just, you know, there is this incredible like catharsis to seeing all of this stuff kind of play out um, in the perfect way. And, you know, it kind of gives you this feeling, you know, all's well that ends well. You know, after the uh, reveal that Stormfront was a Nazi and trying and, you know, essentially manipulating the system to get Compound V out, uh, Vought rescinds Compound V from public consumption, blames everything on Stormfront. So even if she does survive this, she's dead to the world. Um, and you get to see that pretty much... Um, 
uh, Starlight is actually welcomed back into the Seven. Um, and the Seven is now technically just the Four, because following um, following the uh, the reveal from the head of the Church of Collective that he knew that A-Train took the file, uh, we get the reveal that... Um, a-Train is now getting the spot back on the seven instead of the deep. And I loved this. This was so good. Um, it kind of evolving into this whole uh, uh, deep getting so frustrated. Uh, he's like, you know, this is bullshit and all this stuff. And the Church of the Collective guy is just like, I think you need to leave because you're being very toxic right now. And I'm like, oh, of course. This is how it always is. This is how it always is. And I just... Oh, so well done. Um, so basically, the seven is now the four. Homelander, Maeve, Starlight, and A-Train. And that's it. I don't know if that means we're going to get a hiring drive for you know to fill the three spots next season or not. We'll see what happens. Um, but I thought it was really interesting because as they're kind of moving forward into the next chapter, uh, I was kind of hoping we were going to get like a Kratos-Atreus situation where uh, Butcher was now going to have to like raise this soup child um but he turned him over to mallory and the fbi and i was a little i was disappointed i'm not gonna lie i was disappointed by that because i think it would have been much more interesting to see him now have to raise uh ryan but i get it it's fine they want to go a certain direction with it um and then we kind of find out that um mallory is like now gotten permission from the uh from the what's it called uh the government i don't know why that was so hard for me to find that word uh to build a new uh division of soup affairs and that uh she's recruiting basically a government sanctioned version of the boys um and it's kind of implied that butcher's going to join but he doesn't say you know he doesn't accept the offer of employment he just kind of walks off into the distance um and then we find out that the uh congresswoman the le the lady who's been working with mallory and the boys this whole season uh has also been working with the collective like the uh the head of the uh, collective reveals in a phone call with her. He's like, yeah, you know, they found the um, they found the file just like we planned and all the stuff. And I'm like, oh, no, like it's we're going to continue on. And I kind of figured that the collective was going to be the big bad for like the, the third season. But then they turn it all around as we find out that the head exploder was not either of the choices that I gave last episode. Uh, last week because if you remember i said it's either stormfront or it's the headache or it's the uh, telekinetic lady from um uh the what's it called the insane asylum place it's actually the congresswoman and this blew my mind i was so i mean pun not intended um i just i was it was so perfect because like immediately, of course, once this episode wrapped, I went back and I watched the scene where all the heads were exploding and you see it's this really subtle and smart way where um, every shot of the congresswoman is when she looks at someone, then their head explodes. She looks at someone else, their head explodes. It's so smart and it's so clever. I just, oh, I loved every second of that. Um, so I really liked that. Uh, we find out that Victoria Newman, that's her name. Uh, she is the head exploder, and she is going to be potentially the big bad for next season. And she's also the head of the Soup Affairs office. And we see not only the dissolution of the boys with 
Frenchie and Kimiko running off to their next adventure, and then finally getting to go home to his family, which I loved. Uh, but our last uh, our last member, Huey, uh, basically breaks things off with the with the boys, decides to further his uh, relationship with Starlight, and goes to work for Victoria Newman. And this was if I didn't know that a season three was coming. I could have easily seen this as a series finale. I thought it was so good in how it wrapped up everybody's stories while also teasing that, you know, things are going to get bad again at some point. Um, and at the at that same time, we don't really know if Victoria Newman is going to be a villainous character or not. Um, if anything, she, you know, killed the one of the most horrible people in the entire um, in the entire season. But I'm really intrigued to see how they uh, justify a season three because this was as perfect a season, a series finale as you could get for these characters in this show. Um, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. This was my favorite episode of the season, possibly my favorite episode of the whole show. It would be tough. I'd have to go back and check it out. Um, if you would like to see me rank my top five or whatever, please feel free to let me know. Uh, but I just, I loved this so much. It was an incredible episode. It is an incredible episode, and I am so excited to um, see where they go next with this show because we do know there is going to be a third season. Jensen Ackles is going to be joining the cast as Soldier Boy, which I am really interested in. So, uh, yeah, we'll just have to see. But as you know, we have... Uh, the end, we have reached the end of this uh, section of the weekly review. So now we have to look forward into what's going to be our next segment for the weekly review. And that, I have decided, is going to be season two of The Mandalorian. That's right. I jumped on The Mandalorian very late the first time around, but I loved it so much and I'm really um, excited for this season that I am going to be giving the weekly review treatment to The Mandalorian. Now that kicks off, um, I believe, on the 30th. Let me double check here. Mandalorian Season 2 release date. Uh, it's going to be October 30th. So... As we're looking at the calendar here, we have uh, two weeks between now and then where I will be doing another edition of our Wildcard Weekly Review. So uh, look forward to uh, random reviews, wildcard reviews for the next two weeks. And then on our first episode of November, this year is just flying by all of a sudden. Uh, we will be kicking things off with our next weekly review on The Mandalorian. So stay tuned next week for the return of the Wildcard Weekly Review for a two-week uh, double feature. Uh, but for now, we're going to roll right on into this week's Comics Countdown. Ooh, welcome back to this week's Comics Countdown. This is the segment of our show where I talk about the comics that I think you should be picking up this week. Whether it's at your local comic book shop, on Comixology, or however you get your comics, these are the ones I think you should definitely take a look at. Uh, but before we get into this week's books, we've got to take a look back at last week's books with the Geeksplain Pick of the Week of last week. And I'm not going to lie, the book that I picked was not the book that I thought was going to win the, uh, win the week. Uh, there was a lot of choices last week. We had like 
something like nine or ten books last week. It was a huge week in comics. Um, even going to my shop, my local shop, um, uh, House of Secrets over in Burbank, um, I was just astounded with the amount of people that were there, the amount of comics that were there. Uh, it was a big week. It was a very, very big week. Uh, but the comic that I chose was a comic that I just fell in love with from cover to cover, and that is Thor number eight, written by Donny Cates with art by Aaron Cuter. I loved everything about this issue. Absolutely loved everything about this issue. I don't know what it was. It gave me a similar feeling to... Um, you know, when you when you read a single issue of a book and you just, the art is incredible and the writing feels like this creative team knows what's really at the heart of this character is what Thor number eight felt like to me. Every single bit of it from the cheeky bits, from the uh, really heartfelt and really... Um, just touching bits. I just loved everything about this issue. I really hope we get more of Adam Aziz down the line. I thought he was a great, fun little one-off character. And I wouldn't mind seeing more of him. They gave... Aaron Cuter gave him this incredible design that it would be a shame if it was only for an issue and a half. Um, so I hope that he comes back. But I just... I really, really dug this issue. I thought it was such a great Thor issue. Um, with a little bit of Avengers stuff in there, too, because Iron Man does show up. Uh, sporting just the mustache and an interesting um, armor style that we really haven't seen uh, anywhere in the comics right now. So I thought that was cool. Uh, but it also, it planted the seeds for the next arc, which I cannot wait for. Can I just gush for a second? Um, on Twitter, I saw... Uh, this preview video, you can look it up on YouTube as well, where it's this kind of trailer for the next arc, which is uh, Prey. Um, I am so freaking hyped for this. I didn't think, I didn't know how I was going to feel uh, when Jason Aaron's Thor run wrapped up and they said, you know, Donny Cates is going to pick up the mantle alongside Nick Klein. I didn't know how I was going to feel about it, but oh my god, I have been loving this series, and I cannot wait. I cannot wait for the next arc. I loved this issue, and it snuck its way into my heart and into the pick of the week of last week. But that's last week. Let's talk about this week. This week, we get a little bit of a, repri of a reprieve uh, from <laughs> last week's just... Uh, torrential rainstorm of comics. I've got five books for you to check out this week, and let's go ahead and dive into the list with Wonder Woman number 764, written by Mariko Tamaki with art by Steve Pugh. I am going to just put cards on the table. Um, I am going to give this one more arc because I enjoyed the ideas uh, behind this, uh, this previous arc. I enjoyed the art, but I jumped onto this book, and it's superficial and selfish in my... Um, and I fully admit that, but I jumped on this because I thought the team going forward was going to be Mariko Tamaki and Mikel Janine. Um, and it hasn't been, he wrote, he drew, I think the first two issues and then we just jumped off of it. And I thought it was really unfortunate, um, because I just, I don't know, I don't know, but I do enjoy Mariko Tamaki's writing of Diana. I think this uh, partnership that she is now being kind of forced into with Maxwell Lord is interesting, and I will give this another arc. We're going to see. Um, I'm not super familiar with Steve Pugh's art, but, um, but again, I will give this a shot. So let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. Wonder Woman and Max Lord are on the hunt for some missing and extremely dangerous weaponry from Lord Industries, and the search has brought this unlikely duo to... 
Miami? Fun in the sun will have to wait, because if Diana and Max can't uncover this illegal arms trade, the entire city could be blown sky high. But we're sure Max Lord will be nothing but helpful. Right? So, another couple things. I just, it really, I know I mentioned it before, but I have to say it again. I don't like that they're calling him Max Lord now. Um, he sounds like a 90s, um, or no, he's, he sounds like an American gladiator. Max Lord! Um, he's Maxwell Lord. Maxwell Lord is a great name. I don't know why they're suddenly, like, shifting gears. Again, I can only assume it's from, uh, Wonder Woman 1984, but I still think Maxwell Lord is the way to go. Uh, like I said, though, I really enjoy this partnership, and I think that there's a lot of gas in the tank for this, so I'll be picking this up. Next up, we have a new number one. This is Rorschach, number one, written by Tom King, with art by George Fornes and Dave Stewart. Um, I... We talked about this before on the podcast when it was first announced. I have no interest in (laughs) this book, but I wanted to put it on because um, the interviews that I've heard from Tom King uh, and as well as little snippets here and there from George Fornes um, have gotten have piqued my interest. I'm interested to see what they do with this character. I'm interested to see what they do with the story. Um, I don't think it's necessary, and I wish they'd picked uh, somebody else for Tom King to give the Maxi series treatment to. We're still doing Strange Adventures, guys, um, but I am interested, and I'll be picking up at least the first issue just to see what we're in for. Uh, so let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. It's been 35 years since Ozymandias dropped a giant interdimensional squid on New York City, killing thousands and destroying the public's trust in heroes once and for all. And since that time, one figure in a fedora, mask, and trench coat has become a divisive culture icon. So what does it mean when Rorschach reappears as an assassin trying to kill a candidate running against President Robert Redford? Who is the man behind the mask, and why is he acting this way? It's up to one detective to discover the true identity of this would-be killer, and it will take him into a web of conspiracies involving alien invasions, disgraced do-gooders, mystic visions, and yes, comic books. Writer Tom King joins forces with artist George Fornes for a new miniseries that explores the mythic qualities of one of the most compelling characters from the best-selling graphic novel of all time, Watchmen. Uh, Again, cards on the table. I think Watchmen at this point can be put away, can be put on the shelf. We don't need to touch it again. But after reading the synopsis, I am interested. Uh, Looks like it's going to be occupying not exactly the same, but similar space with the uh, HBO Watchmen show. Um, It'd be kind of cool if they tied in elements of that. But Um, Like I said, I'll be picking up this first issue just to see what it's about. Moving on into a comic book that I don't think I've talked about in a little while. Captain America number 24, written by Ta-Nehisi Coates with art by Daniel Acuna. Um, I have to freely admit to you all something. I fell off of this book. I just, I couldn't deal with the Jason Masters art. Um, I love the writing, but I just, I couldn't do it. 
but I was told by a very good friend and a good uh, brother of the podcast, Malcolm, over in uh, Heroes and Villains back in Tucson, as well as the On the Subject podcast, uh, go check them out, they're amazing, um, that the series has been super stellar and the art did change. So I went back, uh, Malcolm actually hooked me up and got pretty much uh, gifted me the issues that I, the back issues that I could catch up on the series. And I really dig it again. I like, I, I really can't explain to you how much it means for me as someone who is a visual reader, how much art matters to a book. Um, And I'm kind of kicking myself that I didn't stick with it. I didn't have the mental fortitude to continue on through it because catching up on it was awesome. I really, really like where they're going with this. Ta-Nehisi Coates is an incredible writer. He is so good at what he does. And I am just, I'm just astounded at the quality of storytelling that they are putting forward in this book. And we are bringing back Daniel Acuna, who was the main artist for the Sam Wilson Captain America run. Um, and is also an artist extraordinaire. He's fantastic at what he does. Uh, but bringing him back into the Captain America fold warms my heart, and I cannot wait to pick up this latest issue. So let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. The Red Skull lives. And that's it on the synopsis. Um Straight to the point. I love it. Um, The Red Skull, as we all know, has been dead since Secret Empire. So I'm really excited to find out what he's got in store for Cap and to see how this is going to carry the... uh carry the story of Steve Rogers forward. Uh, Cap is officially back in the Captain America suit. The legend of Steve has ended and Captain America lives. And now it looks like Red Skull is about to join him. So can't wait to pick this up. This is going to be fantastic. Uh, The next book we've got here is Strange Adventures number six, written by Tom King with art by Mitch Jarrods and Doc Shaner. Um, I have to mention something, just like a little little aside here. Doc Shaner is a goddamn national treasure. Uh, There was some Twitter drama, like there always is, uh, over this past week where Doc Shaner made a comment that uh, Superman shouldn't get the red eyes just because he's angry. He should have them whether just for heat vision. And this brought out the Snyder cult. Um, I, guys, guys, come on. Come on, seriously. Doc Shaner is one of the greatest artists of our generation and one of the best Superman artists of all time. I I feel like he knows what he's talking about when it comes to Superman, and I agree with him. I am so tired of every single bit of, like, popular Superman art having to show him with red eyes and looking angry. Like, I get it. People go through different emotions. We are a multifaceted organism. But Superman is is hope like just oh thankfully he's taken the whole thing in stride um but i just i had to mention that because that really it rubbed me the wrong way um anyway back to strange adventures (laughs) i got on a side tangent i had to i had to mention it because it just it, it got me all fired up um but strange adventures has been fantastic i absolutely love this book i can't wait to pick up this next issue so let's just dive straight into the synopsis Chapter 6. 
How determined is Mr. Terrific to find the truth? The answer becomes more challenging as the whole world starts to turn against him. Adam Strange is a hero who can save the Earth from alien invasion, and who is Mr. Terrific to say otherwise? The extent of the denial only makes the man more suspicious. Not that the warmongering picks care one way or the other. If Strange is to be believed, they only have one thing on their minds, taking over the planet. Adam and his wife beat them back once before, and the key to doing it again is to dig into the past that Mr. Terrific is so hell-bent on destroying. So I, I absolutely love this. I love the turn that this uh, book has taken. Uh, initially, it was very much like, oh, this is post-war, this is the uh, effects of war, how certain actions during war can be twisted and turned from atrocities into um, heroism. And now this is turning into a really interesting discussion, I think, on um, on terrorism, on uh, the ideas between perception and reality. I, I love this book. I think it's so, so good. Tom King and Mitch Jarrett's and Doc Shanner are firing on all cylinders here and i can't wait to pick this up uh that alongside this are my two big books of the week the big book that i think you should absolutely be picking up uh regardless of people's uh disdain for the current state of dc comics is dark knight's death metal number four written by scott snyder with art by greg capullo um this book's just it's been really good and the tie-ins the incredibly strong tie-ins have just made this book even stronger for me um the big selling point i think for the original dark knights metal was to learn about the dark knights getting each of the tie-in issues learning more about them about the red death about um the drowned about um all of them i think were really really a huge selling point for that. And the tie-ins for this have been incredibly strong, uh, especially, and I talked about it before, Speed Metal, uh, probably my favorite uh, tie-in issue for this series and probably my favorite bit of the Death Metal series so far. And this is supposed to lead directly out of that. So I'm really looking forward to picking this up. Let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. An Anti-Crisis, Part 4. Wonder Woman, Batman, and Superman are trapped in nightmare worlds within the Dark Multiverse. They'll need to face down their fiercest foes once again if they hope to accomplish their mission and bring back a power capable of stopping the Darkest Night. But what horrors has he unleashed on Earth while they've been locked away? So, also, Trinity Crisis I thought was really interesting and set up what I'm assuming is going to be the main kind of crux for this, uh, for this issue. I think it's been really strong. I know, uh, death metal isn't everyone's cup of tea and you are absolutely entitled to your own opinions about it. I've been really enjoying it. Um, and I'm looking forward to picking up this issue. I think that the, um, the ramifications from this se- from this series are going to be really strong, and I love that Wally West has been pushed front and center again. I'm just I'm a sucker for Wally West stories, so um, that is going to do it for this week's comics countdown. To recap, we have Wonder Woman number seven sixty four, Rorschach number one, Captain America number twenty four, Strange Adventures number six of twelve, and Dark Knight's Death Metal number four. And that is going to bring us to the wrap-up. If this is your first time joining us on the Geeksplain podcast, first off, welcome. And also, please feel free to subscribe to our podcast on the podcasting platform of your choice. Also, feel free to give us a 
rating and review, especially on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, whatever they want to call it, really helps me out, really helps the podcast out, kind of raises our stock in the podcasting realm and gets us into the orbit of listeners just like you. And if you give us a five-star rating and review on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, whatever they want to call it, I will read your review here live on the podcast. You can join the likes of CFIRND, Josh from Panels to Pixels, and Matt Draper, who have all contributed their five-star reviews, and I have read them all out here. So thank you very much, gentlemen. Appreciate that, and I can't wait to read more uh, more reviews. Also, feel free to give us a follow on Instagram and Twitter at Pod. That's at Pod. If you want to keep up to date with all the things that are going on with the podcast, you'll be able to have conversations with us, uh, with me, I guess, um, as well as participate in some of the polls that we have been putting up there on the Twitter. Uh, recently, our most recent poll, decided our next uh, edition of Pitch It, which will be on an Iron Fist animated series on episode 135, so stick around for that. And I'm going to be putting up another poll this week. That's right, if you go on Twitter at Pod, you'll be able to decide which movie I am going to be doing a commentary track for this year. Every Halloween, I do a commentary for a specific movie. Um, the first year we did It, which was terrifying because as uh, as you know, if you've been a listener to this podcast for any length of time, I don't do clowns. I don't like clowns. Clowns freak me out. So watching It was terrifying. Um, and then last year to celebrate its, uh, what was that, 30th anniversary, I did a full-on uh, live commentary for Batman 89. So that was a fun, that was a really fun time as part of our Joketober uh series that we were doing for last October. So I'm going to, I haven't figured out which movies I'm going to put on the poll yet, but if you want to vote on the poll and decide which movie I do a commentary for on for this year's Halloween special, uh, feel free to go ahead and do that. Give us a follow, keep up to date with us, and you'll be able to chat with me anytime you need to about any of the geeky stuff and really about this podcast. Also, if you want to write in and be part of our Geeksplained mailbag, you can write any and all emails to geeksplained at gmail.com if you have uh, a suggestion for the podcast if you have a question you want to get my opinion on anything that has to do uh, with anything uh, geeky related whether it comes to movies film tv uh, I said movies and film together that's weird uh, video games especially comics I love talking about comics and uh, we actually have a letter as part of our Geek Explained mailbag this week. This comes courtesy of Danny Brown. So thank you very much for writing into the podcast, Danny. Uh, this email reads as such. Big fan of the show. Thank you. Uh, my favorite episode is when you and a co-host reimagined and rebooted the DC Universe. My jaw dropped to the floor when you proposed the Suicide Squad and Green Arrow as the newest member. Uh, yes, if you go back a few weeks, I did a giant-sized episode with good friend... Uh, of the podcast Malcolm Joshua Russell Nelson, where we basically reset the DC Comics line and pitched each of our own uh, DC Comics lines, kind of spinning out of the conclusion of Death Metal. Uh, he also writes,
writes, To the point, I've recently read Batman The Long Halloween for the first time, and my goodness, might be my favorite of all time. Since Halloween is on the horizon, wouldn't it be a great time to geek-splain this graphic masterpiece? Please continue the great work you do, and I'll be listening. Thank you again to Danny Brown for writing in this week. Um, we actually covered... The Long Halloween. It was way back in episode number 70. I know, it feels like a lifetime ago. And it was our first official Geeksplain spotlight. It was a giant-sized spotlight with good friend of the podcast, Andrew Kincaid, also known as AJ Kincaid of the Artistic Liberties podcast. Go ahead and give him a, uh, a listen. Um, it, was one of the, it was one of the books that I really wanted to... Um, give a full uh, in-depth review and discussion on. So if you go back in the archives, check it out. I was still kind of figuring out the uh, the format for the Geeksplain spotlights. So um, it's a little bit of an older episode, but it's one of my favorites. It was the first time that Andrew guested on the podcast. And to that point, I have not reviewed what many consider its sequel, Dark Victory. So I might just go ahead and do that that uh next time so thank you for the suggestion danny brown and again if you would like to be part of our geek explain mailbag you want to ask my opinion uh on anything you want to get my uh thoughts on something feel free to write in to geeksplained at gmail.com of course this is part two of geektober where every week i'm tackling the halloween season in a different form of media last week was comic books with the american vampire series this week animation with Over the Garden Wall, and next week, we are diving into the world of video games, and I'm going to be talking about the first horror game I ever played, which is Dead Space. So tune in next week for part three of Geektober, talking all about Dead Space, same geek time, same geek channel, but for now, for Geeksplain, this is Eric Azana. Thank you very much for listening. Stay safe, stay spooky, and we will... See you next time. At night when the lake is a mirror And the moon rides the waves to the shore A single soul sets his voice singing Content to be slightly forlorn Song rises over the lilies, sweeps high to clear over the reeds, and over the bulrushes sway to pluck at a pair of heartstrings. Two voices now they are singing, then ten as the melody soars. Round the shimmering pond all are joining in song As it carries their reverie on Over the treetops and mountains Garden wall to 